Welcome to Master Your Money, the podcast that teaches you how to take control of your hard-earned money all while living your best life. I am your host, Elizabeth Heiser, Chief Marketing Officer at the Barnum Financial Group. I once felt powerless when it came to managing my finances and my attitude follows suit until one day I changed my mindset, built up my knowledge, and put myself back into a financial position of power. And I started this podcast to provide you with the same education and advice that I received on my journey. Now, I want to help you master your money. Master Your Money listeners, welcome to today's episode. On today's show, we are talking all about estate planning and we have our estate planning guru. I'm going to call her with us today. Um, We have our guest for the day is Kate Cassidy. Kate is our Vice President of Advanced Markets. Kate has been um, providing Barnum Financial Group advisors and clients with estate planning and advanced market services for well over 10 years, I would say. Right, Kate? Yep, 11. 11 years. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know much about Kate's world. We don't have a ton of organic interaction every day. But the only thing I could say, Kate, is that no matter who... I talk to when your name comes up, there's a story about how much you helped them and how much you helped their client. That's nice to hear. It is always the case. And that's really wonderful for yourself and and all the clients you've helped out there. We had Kate on the show today because just last week, you hosted a webinar for our clients where we had almost a thousand people registered where you talked about um, the basics of the basics of estate planning. The webinar was mm-hmm. called Estate Planning Unveiled, mm-hmm. and it was so popular, our most popular webinar within the past year. So I had to have you on the show so our li- all of our listeners could, be- could benefit from all that knowledge. But before we get into estate planning, Kate, can you tell us what that term advanced markets means? Like, what is it that you do every day? How do you help people? Yeah, it, as a as a title, it's not terribly descriptive, mm-hmm. but what it really means is advanced planning. So I'm an estate planning attorney. And in my former life, I was at a law firm and had clients of my own. Um, and here I don't serve as anyone's lawyer, but it's the same subject matter that you would think of an estate planning attorney helping clients with. So wills, trusts, anything there's a fiduciary relationship, powers of attorney and healthcare directives, that kind of thing. I also do things like business succession planning and um, but just business planning in general, special needs planning, elder law stuff. So um, anything that you would really see as an estate business elder law attorney about, that's when the advisors bring their, their cases to me and I help them through the advanced planning aspect of it. So anytime there's a little bit more of a complicated element to the plan, that's really when, when I come in. When they bring you in. And they, they meaning financial advisors, um, clients have to go through their advisor mm-hmm. to, to utilize you and your right. knowledge and your resources, exactly. right? At yes. this moment, clients can't come directly to you. Right, exactly. Yeah, I don't have my own clients. Got it. The advisor are technically my clients. Sure. And through them, I work directly with their, their clients and I have a lot of personal interaction with the clients as well, which is great. Sure. And where does that show up in the advisor relationship? Like, is this part of an overall financial plan? Where does this come up? 
Estate planning is one of the key areas of financial planning. So a lot of our advisors who do comprehensive financial planning bake it into their process as one of the main elements. Okay. Um, sometimes it's an organized part of the plan. Sometimes it's ad hoc kind of one-off um, things that come to me. But estate planning is definitely an important part of a financial you know, person's financial well-being. So it's an important part of that. And you're going to tell us why I'm assuming (laughs) as as we move in, as we move into this. Um, All right. So let's just jump into it then. Your presentation was called estate planning unveiled. And, you know, it's a comprehensive introduction to the basics of estate planning. So where do we want to start? I usually ease it in with sort of the what I call the ancillary documents or the accessory documents to a basic estate plan, because that's the simplest part of it. And okay. um, and kind of thing that's important for everybody, whether it's a newly minted young adult or whether it's somebody who's 95 years old, it's important for everybody. Well, that was my that was my next question. I'm sorry to ask you a question with a question, no, but perfect. let's back up a second. Who at what point in your life do you start thinking about this and estate plan? Technically. The textbook answer to that is that anybody who's an adult should give some thought to their estate plan. And people tell me all the time, I don't have an estate, but Mm. you do. Anything that you own is your estate. And I usually pick up a pen and say, if I own a pen, that's my estate. Mm -hmm. You don't need to own anything grand or anything terribly expensive. If you own it, it's yours. Your estate is your stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So technically, 18-year-olds, they're legal adults. They, in theory, should at least give some thought to this. Nobody really does. Mm -hmm. Usually when people start to think about estate planning, it's when they start to get married and have children Mm -hmm. or start a business and um, start to actually accumulate substantial wealth of their own um, or have people that they're... That are depending that on are them. Dependent on exactly. That. Yeah. So less about age, more about ownership. Mm-hmm. Once you take ownership of something or you have a legal dependent yeah. at that moment, that's when you should really start to give this some thought. Yes. But, but one area when I say an 18 year old could need something estate planning related is when you're going off to college, if you want to say appoint your parent as an agent to act for you mm. so that your parent can talk to the financial aid office for you or talk to the bursar for you or talk to the, you know, student um, life services for you mm-hmm. and get your schedule um, or just handle things for you while you're away. A power of attorney is a really smart idea for um, anybody who's leaving home for the first time mm-hmm. and um, healthcare directives as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about in greater detail. But so that's really the one area where okay. somebody could be really just starting out in life on their own and for the first it. time. And, and it's definitely a smart idea to have a couple of those key documents. Okay. All right. Well, let's get into it then, Kate. Why don't you talk to us about those key documents? Sure. Yeah. So the the first thing I mentioned was powers of attorney. Mm-hmm. So that's a um, standard document that most attorneys will give you as a package when you get your basic estate planning done. And that's the document where you're naming somebody who can act for you as an agent in a whole slew of areas or in a particular area. So whether it's signing a check, signing a deed, executing a contract, uh, making a trade in your account, finding out an account balance, your agent can act act for you in all of the ways that are enumerated in the document. Why, at what point would somebody need a power of attorney? It's a smart thing to have at any age or Mm -hmm. in any situation. Um, But again, people usually delay it until they get Mm -hmm. their estate planning done. But um, it comes up in all kinds of situations because somebody's traveling and there's going to be a real estate closing and they need somebody to sign the paperwork for them while they're away. Yes. Or somebody's out of the country and they need somebody who can, you know, handle something in their accounts yes. for them. So married couples usually will appoint each other. It's always smart to have at least one backup to that. If you, yes. if you um, have somebody else that you trust, but you really got to trust the person because yep. it's a lot of power. 
And this is different. What immediately came up for me when you said this, this is different than like a conservatorship. Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Um, a, a conservatorship is usually when someone has lost mental capacity mm-hmm. and you need the court to appoint somebody mm-hmm. to, because they won't give you power of attorney, power of attorney has to be granted. Yes. Got and it. often that kind of thing happens because it's too late for someone to create a power of attorney because mm-hmm. they've already lost the mental capacity mm-hmm. to legally be able to do it. Got it. So if you have a really good power of attorney in place, it often eliminates the need to ever go to court and have somebody appointed as a guardian or a conservator. That's a pain and can be public can be expensive. Yes. And um, it also takes away the autonomy of the person who's being conserved completely. Yes. So a power of attorney can be something that's kind of a midway. And it can be really important if someone's incapacitated, they've had a stroke or they've suffered from dementia, but it can also be important just because somebody needs help day to day or yes. you don't you want to let your kid pay your bills for you because you don't feel like it anymore, you know? Yes. And it's interesting you say that. Um, do you ever, I never thought of doing it that way where just my husband and I to be backups for each other, mm-hmm. we should, we should do that. And that is for, is that the same thing as like a medical proxy as it's well? Similar, just a different context. Okay. So a, a durable power of attorney is your financial and legal life. Okay. So anything finance related, anything legal related. Mm-hmm. So sign a contract to have somebody work on your house yeah. or sign a contract to uh, get home health care. So mm-hmm. have somebody come in to, you know, help you out with your day-to-day items. Um, or if it's financial, like sign a check or mm-hmm. okay. make a trade or close an account, open an account. Um, the healthcare proxy, which is sometimes called healthcare POA or healthcare representative, depending on what state you're in, that's where you're appointing somebody who can act for you in all of your healthcare decisions mm-hmm. if you can't make or communicate your mm-hmm. own decisions. Mm-hmm. So that's only effective when you've reached that point where you can't do it any longer yeah. yourself. A power of attorney seems very mutual. The, the two people are grant, granting it to each other. Often, yeah. Often, mm-hmm. often given and often, you know, accepted. Yeah. Married couples usually will appoint each other. And then, you know, a, a lot of times you'll see, say, a mom appointing yes. her kid or a yes. dad appointing her kid or... Or know. vice versa. When, sure. Mm-hmm. When that yep, absolutely. Happen. Okay, great. So the first basic document is the durable power of attorney. Mm-hmm. Great. And then the next is one you just mentioned, the healthcare power of attorney. Okay. Which is really, really important for everybody. So sometimes those documents that are the accessories are even more important than the main documents of an estate plan because they're the kind of human element of it. Yes. So making sure that if something terrible happens and you need help handling your finances and or your healthcare decisions, somebody can step in for you. Do you often find, Kate, do you find yourself in a position where somebody does not want to give that? Somebody, one individual, one party, thinks they're okay and does not want to grant that because because mm-hmm. that has to be granted as well, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, there definitely are people who hesitate to give power to anybody in their life. Mm-hmm. The thing about healthcare proxies is that if you don't name somebody, the state law will, uh, will give that power to whoever your next of kin is. Mm-hmm. If you're unable to communicate your own decisions, they'll, mm-hmm. someone will step in. They'll just appoint somebody. Right. So the, um, the, doing the document yourself allows you to actually keep control. Yeah. And kind of power. a, a power. counterintuitive way. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, most people, I think as they, especially as they get older, feel comforted by that rather than alarmed by it. But certainly mm-hmm. some people just don't ever love the idea of, of giving off control to somebody else more, I think in a 
financial context than mm-hmm. in a healthcare context. People do hesitate. And the healthcare. So what does that look like? That means they could call doctors. They could get your medical records. Mm-hmm. They they could make healthcare decisions on your behalf. Right. Without your knowledge, consent. Yes, but Got it's it. only at the point when you can't make your own decisions any longer. Got it. So it's never going to be a situation where you're you're fighting with your kid about your health care. Got it. If you can still fight, you're still the one who's making those decisions. Okay. Um, it's really if you're in a coma, if, okay. you're, if you're under anesthesia at the mm-hmm. time when they need permission to do something else while mm-hmm. you're under. Mm-hmm. If you have Alzheimer's and you can no longer make or communicate your own decisions, that's when the power starts to the agent that you've okay. named. Got it. So it's, and it's, that's an important thing for everybody because you never know what's going to happen. It's not something for people who are sick. It's for anybody who is immortal in this world and mm-hmm. could have an accident tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know? So it, that's a really important thing for everybody to have. And it's not just for people who are kind of end of life. It's okay. certainly important for everybody. Okay. Okay, great. So we have durable power of attorney. We have our healthcare power of attorney. What's next? So the last piece of the healthcare directives mm-hmm. is the living will. Okay. And that's the document where you're laying out whether you'd want to be kept alive artificially if you were in a permanent terminal vegetative state. Okay. Would you want the machines or not? So it's generally artificial respiration, nutrition, and hydration mm-hmm. are the, the three main ones. And you can have all of the above, none of the above, or some of the above. It's very personal. Some people have very strong feelings about wanting some, but not others. And it's just a, it's a really important gift to give your family. So they're not guessing about what you would have wanted. Yeah. Cause that can be really traumatic to have to guess and not ever know if you guessed right. That's so a, that's a really beautiful way of putting it. I don't think I ever thought of it that way, yeah. but yes, you're right. That that is a wonderful gift. Mm-hmm. And if you're the, the child or friend or whoever has to make that decision to not have regret, right. if you made exactly. the right one. Yes. And um, again, that's something that doesn't just come in for people who are old or sick. It's for everybody because you never know what life could throw at you. Mm-hmm. And I get the question all the time. It's not a DNR. It doesn't mean they're not going to treat you 100% if you have a heart attack or if you get knocked in the head and knocked out. It doesn't mean they're not going to revive you. Mm-hmm. It's only if you're in a chronic terminal um, vegetative state that yeah. they're going to have time to ask your family, to talk to your family, to talk to the doctors. And you're going to be able to, your family will be able to. Um, make the decision at the time. It's not, they're not going to stop. They're not going to not code you. They're not mm-hmm. going to not track your heart. They're all going to do all the stuff that you would see on ER, but um, <laughs> it's really for end of life situations. You know, we're talking about situations that you never want to dream about or think right, about. And right. you have to put pen to paper now mm-hmm. and document it. So I can imagine how that's really, really hard, yeah. but necessary, mm-hmm. necessary as you, and you put it so beautifully, just a, a gift to give your family or your loved ones. The good news is you can think about it for a couple of weeks, execute it, put it away. And then you're done. And then you're done. And then you're done. Mm -hmm. Okay. So after we have our living will, what's another basic document? So that's the, that's the three ancillary documents that um, I talked about that are the sort of the easy ones, (laughs) easy in the sense that they're easy to understand. Um, Not necessarily easy to decide who to name, but that's the, the simple ones that come as accessories to the basic estate plan. Then you move on to the more familiar things like a will. Okay which is the biggie. Okay. What, what is usually, what is a will made up of? So a will is the document where you're writing the instructions for how your assets should be distributed after you're gone. Okay. That's its main function. Who gets what, when, who gets your cash, who gets your house, who gets your assets are anything that you deem them to be. Mm -hmm. Assets can be your 
your collection of X, Y, or Z, Mm -hmm. you know, assets can be your money. Um, assets can be, you know, whatever's in your estate to your point, whatever you own, anything you own. So it can be your golf clubs. It can be your Ferrari. It can be your Bitcoin. It can be your NFTs. It can be your, um, family farm, you know, timeshare and any timeshare. Exactly. It can be things like, um, copyrights Mm -hmm. and patents. Mm -hmm. It's really anything that you own can be part of your estate. And a lot of things actually are set up to pass directly outside of the will. So that's an important thing for people to keep in mind that something like an annuity or a 401k or a life insurance policy probably has a beneficiary named on it. Mm-hmm. So that goes directly to that person. To that beneficiary, mm-hmm. even even if you name somebody in your will, yes. that that's different. If you forgot you named X person as beneficiary, um, that would supersede your will. Yes. This, the will is always the last resort for how things should pass. The will is really, oh, a, lot, a lot of people, it's, there's almost nothing in the estate, the probatable estate for the will to even do because things are set up to pass outside probate. But often it's a, you know, a few things people will forget, like the, their car. Mm-hmm. People won't have put transfer on death on the car title. So that'll have to go to the estate or there'll be one small account or a piece of real estate, say, got it. That ends up having to be probated, and sometimes it's everything. Sometimes there's no beneficiaries named, and everything goes to the probate estate. And that's the benefit of, of putting the will together, so you could list all your assets mm-hmm. out, make sure there's somebody decided it's documented, yep. so it does not have to go to probate. So the will actually is probatable. Okay. So that's um, that's a question I get all the time. Um, the probate court, which is the court system that mm-hmm. does fiduciary relationships, probate court's main job is wills. So Doing a will doesn't avoid probate. Oh. It chooses probate on purpose. So um, the if you have a will and that's your only estate planning document and things aren't set up to pass directly via beneficiary and everything goes to the estate, that's very much probate. Okay. So yeah. so you do want a named beneficiary on, you, as, on as many assets as you can. If you want to avoid or streamline probate, you want to have things go outside the will if at all possible. Okay. Yeah. Can I ask then what's what's the point of the will? Um, the will almost is sort of an old fashioned thing these days. Um, and it's for things that didn't get dealt with otherwise. So sometimes there's really nothing that ends up in the will because people set it up. So things pass easily outside of the will. And the idea of a will is a thousand plus years old. You know, the, the language you see in them is really old fashioned. The whole idea of a will dates back to probably like William the Conqueror. Yes, right? you know? yes, so um, the, if you go, when you go to law school and you read case law about wills, it's from the 1700s. It's, yes. which is, I think is cool. I love that stuff about it. But a lot of times um, there's really not much that ends up in the will. Got it. Um, but a lot of times there are because people don't remember to name beneficiaries or their beneficiary passed away mm-hmm. or, um, there's a lot of times it's real estate. So if everything is set up to be beneficiary to, to direct people, and then you're maybe a married couple and you your own your home jointly. So it goes to the survivor automatically, but then the surviving spouse passes away and the house was then just in their name. So at that point, the house has to go through probate. So there are ways to avoid that, yeah. but it, that's often the way that things do end up in probate. Yes, because things just slip, things just slip mm-hmm. through. Right. There's just a lot of assets and a lot of, a lot of people to name. Yeah. Um, so that's how things that usually end up in probate. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. What else about a will? So a will is, um, also the way that you name fiduciaries in your life who would step in after you're gone to do things like raise your kids. So uh, one thing that the will is always going to be important for is if you've got minor kids. Yes. So that if both parents are gone, 
you've named the person who's going to step in. And so that's how, that's how you name guardianship mm-hmm. is through your will. Yeah. And there may be others, um, other ways to do it, depending on what state you're in. There may be states where you can do a specific forum that just does that. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the states that we do a lot of work in, the will is the main way to do that. Okay. So naming somebody who would have guardianship of the child, guardian of the person, mm-hmm. mean that they have custody of them. And then guardian of the estate, which means that they would have charge of the child's money. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important thing. And often what trips people up and makes them never want to actually get their estate plan finished because they can't decide who to name as guardian. Um, that's a big decision. Mm-hmm. And people will sometimes push it off and push it off. And then their kid turns 18 and it's like, whew, thank God. I made it. <laughs> yes. Because um, the kid's an adult now. Um, but it's really important. The stakes are really high if you get it wrong. Yes. Obviously, very, very low chance that it'll ever be an issue because yes. most people live till they're you know, their kids are 60. Yes. When um, but if it does happen, you know, it, it can go wrong. It can go real wrong if you don't do it in it, advance. From your experience is that, and you, you alluded to this, is that the part where this whole process kind of comes to a halt when you have to put that name on a piece of paper? Yes. People often fight <laughs> in families or disagree. You know, two parents, they both have very different feelings or they just don't really have anybody in their life that they can see themselves handing off control of their child to. Yeah. And I don't have an easy answer to that, but I always say if, if it's, if that's what's tripping you up, it's better to do 80% of an estate plan than no estate plan at all. So if you can't think of anybody to actually raise your child, at least do a will, get a name of guardian of the estate for the kid. And if you have to leave it up to the court to appoint a guardian, they'll do it. It's not like the kids are not going to be able to, they're not, they're going to find a guardian for your child. Somebody will step in, but um, it's better to have most of an estate plan done than none of it. So Absolutely try to maybe, think of a guardian, but skip that question and, and finish everything else for the good if, of the situation. If you absolutely have to. Yeah. yeah. But um, ideally, you'll think of somebody and name a backup, certainly, too, because you don't want to run out of people if yes. your first choice has moved out of the country or is sick or just can't handle it. Ends up having eight kids of their own and can't bring another kid into the house. Sure. There could be lots of reasons why your first choice may um, not work. Can't work out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So naming at least one backup is a good idea there. Okay. Okay, great. What else? And then wills, and this isn't the only way to do it, but a will is one way to do it, is a great place to put in trust for children. So a big thing for parents, if your child receives an inheritance while they're a minor, there has to be a guardianship set up in the court and the guardian would handle the funds for the kid. But that terminates either at 18 or 21, depending on what state you're in. And there's no way to push it beyond age 21. So if your child receives an inheritance at, say, 11 years old, that can be held till they're 18 or 21. But the minute they turn that birthday, they get their inheritance, no strings, no guardrails, no help at all. They get a check, you know, or they get an investment account. Most parents find that pretty alarming Mm because you could have somebody who's, you know, a senior in high school suddenly with a million dollars. And I know what I was like when I was 18. So not um, responsible enough or mature enough to handle that. Right. And um overly generous with friends. Yes. And picture like, I'm going to take everybody I know to Vegas. Oh my gosh. That yes. Kind of stuff. You can um, imagine the scenarios. Right. People get involved in bad first marriages. There are, there are predators who want to marry somebody with a million dollars. There are, gosh. you know, there's all kinds of creditors who will try to attach funds. So a trust for your kids that's built into the will or elsewhere in the plan um, allows you to choose the age when they have full access and full control. Okay. If ever it allows you to pick the trustee who's in charge of the money for them. And it allows you to write the rules okay. for how the money is going to be invested and spent. And 
um, at what age they're going to be able to access it. Can you give us a real life example there? Like who would you usually appoint as your trustee? It's usually some other responsible adult in the kid's life. So I would say most commonly you'll see one of the parent siblings as your first choice of trustee. So, you know, dad's sister, mom's brother, Mm -hmm. or, or grandparents, Mm -hmm. grandparents sometimes, um, are the first choice, but then by the time the kids are older, they're starting to get a little bit, they're aging out of the, mm-hmm. being the first choice. Mm-hmm. So um, they'll have siblings as backups. It doesn't have to be anybody in the family. It could be just a friend or a business associate. Is it ever the attorney? Yes, it can be. Mm-hmm. If you don't have somebody in your life who you want to have that job, you could certainly name your attorney if they're if they do that kind of work or your CPA. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also banks and trust companies that do that work. Mm-hmm. For a fee, mm-hmm. of course, if you've got a professional trustee, they're going to charge. Family usually doesn't. They can mm-hmm. charge a reasonable fee, but they usually don't if it's okay. an uncle of the kid or whoever. Sure. So, um, but yeah, th- there's a lot of options there. Um, and it's usually someone who's close to the kid. And you can also have two trustees. So if you want to have one professional and one family member as partners, that works too. Well, so what goes into being a trustee? Like, are, are, are they giving a weekly allowance to the family or to the child? Are they making sure the money grows at... X rate, like what does that job description look like? It could be either of those things. Um, hopefully they're investing. Well, they're required to invest prudently, keeping in mind the needs of the child. Mm-hmm. So they have to kind of, just like they would sitting down with an investment advisor and looking at their own investment risk tolerance and their own time horizon, they have to do all of that stuff too, just they're thinking about the child instead of themselves. Okay. So they really, the trust is a list of instructions for the trustee. That's right. And they're just executing those instructions. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they're just executing, hopefully a very well laid out plan. Yeah. There's always going to be some discretion to mm-hmm. the trustee because you can't foresee every possible sure. situation, but it's usually, um, do your best, you know, um, try to, try to put yourself in my shoes and mm-hmm. remember what I would have wanted mm-hmm. and use the money smartly for the kids. And the kid would go to the trustee and say, I need money for tuition. I need money for my rent check. I need money because I want to take a vacation. And the trustee would use their best judgment to say, that's a great use of the funds or that's very silly. No, not this year. Um, mm-hmm. And the trustee has a lot of open architecture to decide how to spend that money. Having a, a weekly or a monthly stipend certainly is reasonable mm-hmm. if they're a young adult and they're out on their own and they need money for rent and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But that would usually be the trustee's choice to say, we'll give you X dollars a week or you come to me and you give me a bill and I'll pay it. Pay it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, depending on what the kid is like and yeah. whether yeah. they're great with money or whether they're, they have risk factors in their lives yep. that make the trustee uneasy. Yep. There's usually a lot of open architecture to decide how to, how to function. But yeah, they have to invest Prudently, you know, with the same kind of fiduciary relationship that any fiduciary has, they have to put the money of the child first, the child's interest first. They can't um, do self-dealing where they borrow money for themselves. I was, I was just going to say, yeah. What, yeah, the, the trustee must have responsibilities and legalities that mm-hmm. they have to follow. Yes. Yes. There definitely are um, fiduciary duties to, yes. the, to the child, the beneficiary that they have to, it's a very high standard. Okay. All right. So are, are, are those it? Are those kind of the five main documents? We have the basics of the power of attorney, the healthcare power of attorney and the living will. Yep. And then we have the trust if necessary. Yes. So that's the, the trust for the kids could be built into the will. Okay. Or it could be separate. Okay. So the will, the powers of attorney and the healthcare directives, that's the big sort of four okay. that a basic simple estate plan would contain. And then the add-on to that, which a lot of people do end up using, is a revocable living trust as Ugh. the really foundation or hub of the estate plan. What is that? So 
It's, it's we actually, didn't even get to the hub of the state plan yet. <laughs> a lot of our clients do end up going this route. It's not a requirement. Not everybody needs it or, or wants it. And in some states, it's almost a matter of course that people get it. In some states, it's not popular at all. Um, but it's really the way that people button up their probate avoidance goals. So okay. if you do a revocable living trust and then you put all your assets in it, they're automatically outside of the probate court's hands. Okay. Because you've moved them out of your own ownership and into a trust, so they don't have to go through the will. Okay. And you still have full access and full control over the money in the trust okay. while you're alive. So Is it all assets or just money? It can be any asset really can go in it except for like a 401k or an IRA. You okay. can't put those in during your life, but it can hold real estate. It can hold investment accounts. It can hold annuities. It, it can, can hold, hold life insurance. It can hold tangible items, Absolutely. jewelry, mm-hmm. cars, yep. things like that. Yep. Okay. It can hold anything that a person can hold, except okay. it can't hold an IRA or a 401k okay. or a 403b, that kind of thing. Um, so it's really easy to throw things in there, take them back out again. You have full access, full control. And um, when you pass away, the trust sort of morphs into the next stage of its life. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it often continues on for the benefit of a family member, a spouse, kids, grandkids. So it it's a, it's revocable while you're alive, but you are the only person who has the right to revoke it. So when you're gone, it becomes irrevocable. That's it. And it's locked up. That irrevocable meaning you can't change it. Nobody, Basically, you can't change it. Nobody yeah. can change it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are some ways to use state law to change a trust, but the best way to go into it is to assume that it can't be changed. And if something terrible happens, life changes drastically, tax law changes drastically. There might be some ways to go in and make tweaks, but the best way to look at it is that it can't be changed. Yeah. Okay. Can you, can you give us an example? Like real life, how does a revocable trust show up? So, I mean, it's really common just for married couples to have them as their basic estate planning, um, tool. Okay. So they'll, they'll each have sort of mirror image trusts, or they might have one joint trust depending on really the style of the attorney who set it up. So they set up their own trust. They are their own trustee during life. Mm -hmm. They're their own primary beneficiary during life. Mm -hmm. They're the grantor of the trust because they're the one setting it up. And then they could put their investments in there, put their house in there. And then they don't really even feel it going forward. It doesn't affect their day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. Really, the difference is if they're going to sign a check from the trust-owned account, they're just going to sign comma trustee after their name. That's really the only difference. doesn't change their tax situation. Because they are everything at the moment. Mm-hmm. They're yep. the grantor, they're the trustee. Yeah. And it all sort of morphs into one role, even though it technically is three different roles. It's like a, like a company where you're the CEO, the president, yes. and their key employee, and yes. it all just morphs into one one job. Um, it's kind of like that. Okay. But you have, they have to, you have to grant somebody power when you, when you pass, mm-hmm. right? Yep. At some point, you're going to have to do that. Yeah. So you named a successor trustee who mm-hmm. would take on that role. If you either became incapacitated and couldn't do it mm-hmm. or you died, or you just don't want the job anymore, you can step down as trustee and your backup steps in. And usually that happens at death. So the trust would continue on with your new trustee in charge. Often the new beneficiary of the trust would be the surviving spouse or the kids or the grandkids or the charity that you've named. Mm-hmm. So um, then the trust just enters a different stage of its life and it becomes a new entity. And the whole purpose of the trust is to avoid the will mm-hmm. and then avoid probate. That's one of its main functions. Yeah. yeah and mm-hmm. to avoid everything that goes along with probate yeah. and, and taxes, I would imagine. Probate fees, definitely. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't really save on taxes in any particular way. In mm-hmm. this, um, this type of trust, there are trusts that do save on taxes. This one is really more of a convenience tool okay. than it is a money saver, but it, it. it can keep probate fees down a little bit. It can keep probate um, attorney fees down when someone passes away. Okay. It can 
then is the, there. is the benefit kind of the, um, the speed to access? Yes. Okay. Speed to access is a big thing. So mm-hmm. a probate, a true full probate can take months. It can take years, even in some cases, even when it's not terribly complicated, mm-hmm. it can be drawn out for a year, a year and a half to get everything wrapped up. Yep. And then that means the beneficiaries are often waiting for their money. Whereas if things are in trust, or if they have a beneficiary named on them directly, they are usually accessible within a week, a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. So mm-hmm. it's much quicker. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So yeah. that's the benefit mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. And these are very common. Very common. So yeah. after you take care of all the power of attorneys and and anything that should go in a, in a will or in, in a last will, then we we talk about this, getting mm-hmm. everything into a trust. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. So if we look at that picture, that's really the estate plan, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. If you have all those documents to the best of your ability, a plan for them or decisions for them signed off on by an attorney, that's your estate plan. Yeah. You want to make sure that you're funding it, that you're getting things in the right place. So it's always really important to do a periodic audit of your beneficiary designations. Yes. Making sure that you're not, you don't have your ex-spouse from 10 years ago still on the the, um, beneficiary or that kind of thing. Um, And then if you have a trust built into your plan for your kids, for example, you want to make sure that assets actually flow to it. So you want to name that trust as beneficiary on your insurance. Yep. Spouse probably is primary and then back up, name the trust for the kids so that things don't accidentally bypass the trust. And then you did all that work for nothing. And okay. you want to actually make sure that you're mapping out how things are going to yes. flow. This, just like we talked about in a financial plan, an estate plan is not a set it and forget it type of document. It's a living fluid document mm-hmm. that does need to be reviewed. How often? Once a year? Once every couple of years? Um, I mean, say three years probably is is a good ballpark unless something really important changes in your life. So if mm-hmm. you get married, you've got another kid, if you get divorced, mm-hmm. um, if somebody important in your life dies, so your first choice of fiduciary or your spouse or your parent, then that's a good time to review it as well and make sure nothing needs updating. But for the most part, I would say every three years or so, you should kind of dust it off, look okay. at it and make sure that it still reflects your wishes. Okay. Um, if people did it every three years, that would be a gold star. Yes. You know, people tend to forget, but um, it, you're absolutely right that it should be a living, breathing, and it's very flexible and it can always be changed. Sure. So you don't need to worry about boxing yourself into one plan. It's not set in stone until you're dead. So you can absolutely make changes as life changes. Okay. All right. Great. That's good to know. Um, That was really helpful. I think estate planning, it is intimidating. Mm -hmm. The word is intimidating. I think that when you think of an estate plan, you do think of an estate. Like I I don't have this huge estate that I I need to plan for, Mm -hmm. but based on this conversation, it's, it's an everyone yeah, type of need. Absolutely. So thank you for clarifying that. You, you have a really great way about you, Kate, to make complex information seem very, very simple. Thank you. I hope so. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. What, what is it that people need to know about estate planning today as far as exemption amounts and any type of regulation that's happening? So for the people who do have estates in the sense of, you know, I always think of moving knives out, you know, with them. The, the castle and the, you know, mm-hmm. the millions of dollars, people who do have large estates and do need to worry about estate taxes, the estate tax exemption right now is almost $13 million per person. So a married couple, it's almost $26 million per person. So most people don't have estate tax concerns right now in 2023. Mm-hmm. Certainly there are plenty who do, but sure. most people don't. Um, currently the exemption of $13 million is scheduled to sunset in 2026, January 1st, 2026 and cut in half to go to about say seven, cause it's indexed for inflation. So okay. it'll be a little higher. So maybe say $14 million per married couple. So that's gonna 
increase who gets affected quite a lot if that does happen. But it's just really hard to predict what's going to happen with estate taxes because it's always a complete free for all in Washington. Sure. When people talk about estate taxes, it's always a bargaining chip when we do tax reform. Sure. And so we don't really know one year to the next what they're going to do in Washington. But the current law is that it's going to be cut in half in 2026. And you're part of that conversation a lot. You are part of industry associations mm-hmm. that do do legislative work. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a group called Finseca, which mm-hmm. is an industry wide organization of people mm-hmm. who are life insurance is essentially life insurance and other financial professionals who yeah. care about the stuff, care about mm-hmm. tax reform and care about financial security for everybody. And one of the things that a lot of us here at Burnham do every year is we go down to Washington for um, a Capitol Hill day where we actually go and walk around Capitol Hill and meet with staffers of the Congress people and the senders and talk about important things that affect our clients. And one of the things that affects our clients quite a lot is the state taxes. State taxes. And um, it's interesting and cool to have some sort of effect help on, um, on the thinking down there. And um, that group is really, really important and has gotten a lot of really important stuff accomplished over the years. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, great work there. Um, you and I worked on a project together that was really fun that I want to share a, a little bit ago, but it was kind of an estate planning gone wrong mm-hmm. conversation about yeah. what happens when you don't do this, when either you think you don't need it, so you just don't bother with an estate plan, mm-hmm. or to your point, you you put you put it off because it's really hard. You put it off so long that you do nothing yeah. and then the inevitable happens. What's like an estate planning gone wrong situation that you can talk about? Every once in a while, something will pop up in the news and it always is really exciting for me because it's not always the most glamorous thing, estate planning, um, mm-hmm. but yes. it's not usually something that makes the news, but every once in a while it is. And um, a couple of Things that have been in the news, or Prince's estate plan was all over the news when that finally settled. Oh, yeah, I remember that. He didn't have an estate plan really at all. He didn't have a will. He didn't have any trusts done at all. So um, he ended up with different branches of his family fighting. And he actually ended up with a lot of um, conflict with the IRS about what the total value of his estate was. So eventually they did settle on a number and his estate paid millions and millions of dollars of estate taxes, but he hadn't done any tax planning. So that was... Very, very messy, a very messy estate. Yeah. Recently, a different one, um, I believe, is Aretha Franklin's estate because she had she lived in a state where you can do handwritten wills, uh-huh. which you can't do everywhere. You can't in Connecticut. In some states, you can literally scribble your estate plan on a napkin. You scribble your will on a napkin and, and that can done. be your will. Yeah. And so she lived in an in a state where you could. And she had more than one and they didn't know which was the real one they were some of them were undated i think they literally found one in her couch cushions oh my god and um so different people in her life were fighting over which was the real will yeah was it the one that she signed that was typed yeah, was it yeah. the later one that she did that was signed in ink yeah um that she wrote out in ink and um that's just a, i mean why invite that kind of conflict and chaos into your life yeah. <laughs> um it's much better to have something really solid with a, a lawyer helping you make sure that it works right and that it actually is logical and yeah. that you're not actually baking in conflict right into your will because a lot of times when people try to do, go out on their own they don't realize that they're creating ambiguities by their wording mm-hmm. that people are going to fight over until mm-hmm. the end of time mm-hmm. so it's really important and your to, wish is not going to be granted right exactly cuz no one's going to know what it means exactly right yeah so there are definitely some cases where things got really messy because people didn't do the proper planning in advance. And it's easy to avoid if you bite the bullet and go see the lawyer and get things wrapped up. Yeah. 
try your best for any clients of Barnum Financial Group. If you have questions for Kate or you do want to talk about your estate plan, you can go ahead and see your financial advisor Mm -hmm. and they will get you in touch with Kate and you can go through that together. Anytime. Um, Kate, this was just fabulous. Thank you so much for simplifying, for simplifying this and sharing all this knowledge. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Master Your Money. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Every little bit helps. You can also follow us on our Instagram at Barnum Financial Group. If you're interested in connecting or working with a financial advisor at the Barnum Financial Group, the links are in the show notes of this episode. All opinions expressed by the program participants are solely their current opinions and do not reflect the opinions their respective parent companies or affiliates or the companies with which the program participants are affiliated. Investments or strategies mentioned in this program may not be suitable for you, and you should make your own independent decision regarding them. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for you you should strongly consider seeking advice from your own investment advisor. Securities and investment advisory services offered through qualified registered representatives of MML Investor Services, LLC. Member SIPC, 6 Corporate Drive, Shelton, Connecticut, 06484, telephone number 203-513-6000.